Little Watson Center, an independent feminist nonprofit comprehensive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. Join us as we explore topics that impact our sexual and reproductive health and lives. Here's your host, Aspen Rulin. Aspen uses they, them pronouns and is our client and community advocate. Hello all and welcome back to Reproductive Left. I'm your host Aspen, my pronouns are they, them, and this month we're talking about environmental feminism as part of our activism-focused season. What is it and what does the environment have to do with feminism? Spoiler alert, a ton. Joining me today is my friend Dr. Jacqueline Gill, she, her, paleoecologist, associate professor of climate science, and someone cool enough to have their own Wikipedia page. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Aspen. I'm so excited to talk to you just in general and especially about this topic. Yeah, I was really excited when you said you'd be available for this um, because you're always fun to talk to anyways. And this is something I'm always interested to talk about. Uh, Speaking of one thing that I think we should get out of the way up top. Folks may have heard of ecofeminism. They may have heard of environmental feminism. And you might be wondering, what's the difference? Are they the same thing? So environmental feminism is the more recent term, and it's usually defined as being more broad and intersectionally focused, while ecofeminism is a term that's been around much longer and is usually defined as exploring the relationships between women and nature. Now, there is a strong chance that I'll use them interchangeably. You know, language is really weird. Ecofeminism holds a special place in my heart. And it also just has less syllables. Um, Yeah. Again, language is weird. And fun. And fun. I, everyone who listens to this is aware that I have a lot (laughs) of fun with the language. Um, And you, because you have talked to me a lot before and know how I feel about language. Yeah. Um, And I'm, I think I'm also old enough now. (laughs) I'm, I'm officially old. I'm over 40 and um, watching some of these terms and concepts evolve, including some of the ones we'll talk about today are um, I think it's been a learning experience for me. And it's also just nice to have a, a broad perspective on how our relationship as humans to language changes and evolves. And that's a good thing. And we should be constantly interrogating these kinds of topics. And I think that's really important. Oh, yeah. I yeah. Language. Cool. Uh, So our first question, what does environmental feminism mean to you? And this is both personally and in regards to your work. So I love that you brought this up um, because as a woman, as a woman in STEM, um, as someone who's who's been an environmentalist pretty much since I had language. I had speech. Um, Apparently, one of the very first things that I ever did was get up on a stump from a tree that my grandfather had cut down and yell, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. Let them grow. Let them grow. Right. Like this is this is one of the earliest memories that I have from my childhood. Um, I can't you know, I often tell people I cannot disentangle my identity as a woman, my identity as an environmentalist, my identity, my identity as a scientist, all of these things are bound up because my lived experiences thread through them. And then just, you know, the way that I approach these kinds of questions, they're all deeply intersectional. Yeah. I also have to say, I very much relate to the tree stump incident. Um, I have heard from relatives that as a small child, I would just go like talk to trees, like have whole conversations. (laughs) Um, So that's very relatable. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, so, so thinking about, I just realized I didn't actually answer your question, which is, you know, what, what does environmental feminism mean to me? Um, it's, it's very much this under, you know, from an academic perspective, there's, there's the definition, right. Which is this understanding that the ways in which we see oppression play out in environmental spaces and for women and gender minorities um, or minoritized people in general are, are very related. There are deeply intertwined ways in which um, oppressions, particularly um, patriarchy and capitalism disproportionately affect the environment and women um, and, you know, BIPOC peoples uh, in ways that are deeply related. Um, and so the, this idea of environmental feminism or ecofeminism, as you mentioned, you know, where the roots are really comes out of this understanding uh, by work like Vandana Shiva uh, from work by folks like Vandana Shiva and others that really notice that, you know, the, the sort of extractive capitalist approaches um, that really um, have kind of underlain both uh, sexism and misogyny and also environmental degra degradation, you know, they all come from the same places. They all come from the same roots. They all come from the same relationships. Um, they're, you know, high, highly hierarchical relationships with nature and with gender. Um, you know, all of these things are, there's, there's sort of these threads or these patterns that people are observing, you know, over the last several decades. Um, and so this idea that, um, you know, pushing back against those kinds of relationships with the natural world and these kinds of relationships that we see in society with, with gender, um, the, some of the, the problems have the same root. And according to environmental feminists, a lot of the solutions also have the same roots. And so the idea that we have to change our relationships from extractive to, um, to sort of more of a of a holistic, peaceful coexistence, um, where we rec we recognize that our our bodies, our our um, you know our livelihoods are deeply connected to the health of the natural world, and I think that can be especially true, um, especially when you look at uh, reproductive health, for example. Right, there's a lot of deep connections with. Um, with uh, reproductive health and, you know, pollution and climate change. And I'm just really excited to talk about all of that. Yeah. And you touched on uh, one thought just now that I was having of, you know, there is that looking at the parallels of how the patriarchy treats marginalized people and how the patriarchy treats nature. And then also looking at how, you know, environmental damage things like pollution so that treatment of like how patriarchy treats, treats nature and how then that has a negative impact on marginalized people you know whether we are talking about like rachel carson's silent spring and like cancer rates that you know particularly affect people who are assigned female at birth um cancer caused by pollution or if we look at like the fact that the water in flint michigan is still not safe to drink so yeah both the parallels in how the patriarchy treats these and how the patriarchy's treatment of one ends up having an impact on marginalized people yeah and i i think you know one of the things that we say in in our climate outreach is that the people who have been harmed the first and the most by climate change, and this would be true of, of for other environmental problems as well, like pollution, those are the people who have contributed least to the problem, right? This is where climate justice or environmental justice comes, you know, comes 
into play, right? It's it, we need to have justice centered solutions to these environmental problems. Otherwise we basically reinforce them. We, um, we end up repeating the same mistakes of the past. And, and we see that playing out in terms of, you know, communities of color having less access to, uh, um, green spaces and also to, you know, less access to green energy while at the same time being much more likely to be located next to a natural gas processing plant or something like that. Right. So these are the kinds of relationships that also I think we see play out in terms of the relationships between um, the environment and patriarchy's influence on how society treats women. Um, and, uh, and, and so sometimes, you know, you mentioned this, this idea of like, Ecofeminism versus environmental feminism and how environmental feminism is is considered a little bit more intersectional. Um, and, and part of that comes out of this idea that there some folks have criticized ecofeminism for being kind of gender essentialist, right? This idea of mother nature, mother earth, um, which has its own set of baggage, right? This idea that um, gendering nature as female uh, it can be... Um, can can itself be problematic, but at the same time, it's also deeply powerful, right? And so, mm. none of these terms are uh, are perfect, right? None of these none of the ways in which we're characterizing these relationships are are perfect, and they will evolve over time. But um, that was one of the sort of initial pushbacks was, you know, um, like why do women or people who are assigned women as birth always have to be in caregiver roles. What does this mean in terms of the expectations and the added burden, frankly, that it places on women to be leaders in these movements? Um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for, for just being aware of that um, as we have these conversations. Definitely. And your mentioning of justice and making sure that we're centering justice and look at who's like really being the most harmed and denied the most resources is honestly a perfect segue into the next question that I had for you. So, you know, I'm someone who works in abortion advocacy, obviously. uh, And something that I hear like way too often, uh, both in that work and just like as a person who exists in the world, is the idea that we need abortion because of human overpopulation and that climate change is simply an issue of human overpopulation. Um, As someone who supports abortion access and is a whole associate professor of climate science, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, thank you so much for raising this question because um, as someone who went to school in the 90s, like high school, um, you know, went to college in the early 2000s, these justice ideas were not really, at, you know, centered in our conversations about the environment. It was very much, um, you know, the envi- environmental issues, climate change, it's a pop- population problem, an overpopulation problem. Um there's so much pushback to that that's emerged in recent decades. And for very good reason, if you drill down into the histories of these population arguments, even looking at some of the, the seminal works, if I'll use, if I'll use that term uh, in, in like the sixties and seventies, they're incredibly problematic and they are, they are based on a foundation. And this is where I'm going to get yelled at by someone I'm sure, but they're based on a foundation of really racist ideas. Um, The idea that, you know, People in developing countries are growing in their populations um, and therefore using more resources and uh, uh, contributing to runaway population growth. And we don't have enough food to feed everyone. Right. It's never the conversations are never centered around, you know, affluent Western 
uh, you know, mm-hmm. white, predominantly white communities. It's always communities of color, um, developing nations, global South, you know, again, these terms evolve, have evolved over time. And that is so incredibly problematic because we actually know from data, we have data on this, that as you reduce population growth rates in countries, the, um, the footprint of individuals, so the consumption rates of the of, of an average person in that country goes up, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we many of us in the environmental movement are trying to reframe the conversation away from population and towards consumption because the United States has had a really low population growth rate relative to many other countries for decades now, but we have a very high consumption rate. And so we actually have contributed disproportionately to the climate changes that we've seen so far. Um, something like a fifth of all historic emissions um, are were generated by the United States, right? Um, so the problem is not consumption, or sorry, the problem is not population, the problem is consumption. And when you make arguments about population, the first thing you, you know, when you hear those arguments, you should be asking, okay, who are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you're, if a lot of these really just mask anxieties about population growth in, you know, black and brown communities, and that is racism, right? That is textbook racism. Even if people who are making those arguments don't even realize that those kinds of anxieties are behind those arguments, um, it's easy to just accept them on face value. You know, more people equals more resource consumption. But when you look at the data, you know, the average person in the global South uses a tiny fraction of the resources that we use here in the United States um, every day, right? And that is a fact. And there's a ton of stratification even within the United States, but mm-hmm. even our poorest communities are still using way more resources than you know th- your average community in most parts of the world now. And so um, we know that focusing on population is not the problem. Um, we can talk about empowering women and girls. Um, we can talk about expanding access to reproductive uh, healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. All of those things are great, but even that starts to get a little bit coded for population control. And mm-hmm. and that, you know, that leads down some really creepy eugenics pathways if you follow that trail far enough. <laughs> Exactly. And I actually saw recently, um, I think it was on like Twitter, but some like news, like some news company had shared an article headline that was basically about like, oh, climate change and overpopulation. And they had this like world map where the size of the countries was based on the size of the population, you know, really putting forth that idea that like, oh, it's these countries that have really high population growth that are driving climate change. And someone responded with a world map that the size of the countries was based on consumption Mm. rather than just population. And yeah, that is a, that's like a huge thing. It is, you know, what is actually being consumed. And this is something when I got my master gardener certification, actually, that came up as one of our units was talking about food access and how, you know, food insecurity and starvation, whether we are talking about in Maine or across the world, are it is not an issue of not having mm. enough food. Mm-hmm. It is not, it is poor management of resources is what the issue is. 
Oh, 100%. I mean, we have more than enough food to feed everyone in the world. Um, just to give you a, a, a sense right now, 40% of the food that is produced in the United mm-hmm. States is wasted, wasted yep. 40%, right? And um, and that is not, most of that food is not grown in ways that are sustainable. We could make right. some very simple choices that could improve the sustainability of the food that we grow, even in our high consumption country. Um, and, uh, oh shoot, there was something else I was going to mention about that. Uh, well, you think of it, oh, I'll point out. Oh, yeah, it came back to me. Sorry. Um, and and oftentimes this comes up today where people say, well, look at China, look at India. They have massive populations. They're developing really rapidly. They're going to completely throw us over these climate tipping points that we want to avoid. Right. They're going to send us off the cliff into, uh, you know, into runaway climate change. Mm-hmm. Basically, what you're saying, if you make that argument, is that it was OK for us in the United States, in Australia, in Great Britain to industrialize and become affluent on the backs of all of the people in the rest of the world who paid for our affluence. And then now we're going to turn around and and pull up the ladder behind us and say other people can't have that same standard of living, right? It's just that the emissions that we've already contributed took place over the last century to get us to where we are now. And yes, we are leveling off and we are starting to decline in some cases um, in, you know, here in the U.S. in terms of our emissions. But meanwhile, our consumption is still increasing, especially if you talk about billionaires. So, mm-hmm. you know, who's who's the actual problem? Like you're, all, all people are doing is saying, do as I say, not as I do. And mm-hmm. that's not a solution. And there's no justice in that solution either. Yeah. And one thing that I think is really important to point out with the 40% food waste thing, because a lot of people then feel guilty, like, oh, I let um, my spinach in the fridge go bad. This is me calling myself out because I do that a lot. It just wilts so quickly. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of pressure on individuals where it's like, oh, well, it's because you as an individual are being wasteful. Which is like, yeah, we can all do stuff like I compost now that I have the space for it. But that 40 percent of food wasted is largely on like food production, yeah. not on individual consumers. And I just want to make sure our listeners know that because there well, obviously, there are things we can all do for the climate. There is this very individualistic culture in the U.S. that takes the blame from corporations who are largely responsible and puts it on individuals who often have like less control. Uh, With that, we are going to take a quick break for a Mabel's Fast Fact with Abby. Because of the difference in pH, some sexual lubricants can affect sperm viability. While this is not to be used as a form of birth control, it's important to keep in mind for those who are trying to conceive. Learn more in our show notes or at movablewadsworth.org. And we are back. Uh, We addressed this a little bit, but I did want to give you some more space to go into it. Um, So this myth of overpopulation, how does that bring us down the road of eugenics and eco-fascism? Yeah, this is a topic that, uh, you know, you would, it's, it's a really hard one to talk about because a lot of people who are in otherwise, who are in many ways otherwise progressive, really don't want to hear about the 
eugenics or racist roots behind a lot of these ideas about overpopulation. Mm. Um, and so if you look at, you know, the history of eugenics in the United States, and we kind of invented it. Um, you know, we yeah. we, out, we outsourced eugenics to to the Nazis. For for people who aren't familiar with that history, it's really worth learning the history um, about the eugenics movement. Um, a lot of the eugenics movement grew out of concern of the, about the poverty problem, right? This idea that poverty was linked to. Um, basically to your genetics, that there was a genetic determinism that people who grew up in poor conditions uh, were basically genetically inferior. And um, that if we could just sterilize these, these poor souls, then we would prevent poverty because then they wouldn't be able to reproduce. Right. And so this starts to sound, uh, you know, this is, if it sounds horrifying, it's true, but it really came out of this, you know, these are people who were otherwise liberal, they were otherwise progressive, and they had this idea that to solve poverty, what we needed to do was to basically sterilize people. We needed to prevent people from, uh, from reproducing. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the early roots of reproductive freedom in the U S in terms of some of the technology, like, the, like the pill, for example, you know, have, it's, it's hard to, to disentangle some of those relationships with, with the history of eugenics. Um, and so when you think about how these relationships play out today in terms of population arguments, um, you know, the, again, the anxiety is always about certain groups of people, right? It's people who are uh, in the global South, um, people who are in developing nations, people who are uh, in, you know, poor communities of color, right? Um, where they might not have access to the same resources. They might not have access to education. They might have might not have access to healthcare. Um, and so the idea is, you know, there's, there's this sort of anxiety that if, you know, if, if people in in many nations in Africa, if people in India start uh, consuming like we do here in the United States, um, there's this recognition that that's going to be a net negative for the environment, right? And so, mm-hmm. so that population anxiety um, really is is something that's focused outward. It's very rarely focused inward, right? Because you know, I think we have this deep recognition that um, the people that were really worried about, you know, growing their population, it's not necessarily, you know, our neighbors down the street, right? It's going to be people somewhere else far away who probably are black or brown, but we just don't think about it in those terms, right? But you can't extricate these ideas because they're deeply, you know, they're deeply intertwined in terms of history. Um, And so I, you know, as a, as a paleo ecologist, right, I'm used to thinking about things on on, in their historic context, I'm used to thinking about where we've come from and how we can use that information to help us understand where we're going. Um, and so, you know, the first thing we have to recognize is that there is this this deep history in terms of the overpopulation and, and the eugenics movement, even though people may not recognize that or they may not be aware of it. That that doesn't excuse it, right? I think we have a responsibility to understand the history of the ideas that we hold and the ideas that we're trying to promote in the world. Um, and so where this starts to creep up again with ecofascism mm. uh, is uh, there's there's this creeping tendency. And I think it really gets Aspen at what you were saying about the about individualism and sort of the toxic, the sort of toxic individualistic mentality that we often have cultivated here in, in the U.S. and in similar countries where um, th- there's this idea that 
solving climate change is a matter of individual um, choices, right? Rather than large scale systemic change. There are so many flaws there, but it starts with the idea that we cannot buy our way out of this, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot just change what you buy. You can't just buy different straws and suddenly we have fixed climate change. You can't, you can't even just change your light bulbs or change the cars that you drive. None of those things are sufficient, right? Partly because not everyone has access to the same choices Mm -hmm. and opportunities. Um, And so we need large scale systemic change in order to drive the accessibility of the options that we have um, to, you know, expand uh, green energy technologies to make things affordable, like heat pumps, et cetera, right? All of those things require strong leadership on climate. Um, We can be incredibly powerful in terms of our collective responses in driving those things through things like protesting, um, you know, uh, educational campaigns, um, letter writing, voting, you know, all of those things are really great collective responses that can help drive that systemic change. But none of that is enough on its own, right, without those, those, those changes. And I would say as an aside, there's a lot of value in making individual choices for the planet. Um, we know there's a lot of data on behavioral studies that sh- that tells us if you do one thing, you're more likely to do another thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that your choices influence your neighbors. The single biggest predictor of whether or not you're going to have, um, uh, of, of whether you're you're going to get solar panels is whether your neighbor has them, right? There's this like keeping up with the Joneses sort of angle there, which is really I'm laughing because my neighbor does have solar panels, <laughs> But also because it's my mom. So like will be able to basically get me a deal when I can afford them. Yeah, but it's like it's a real thing. Right. So, you know, I I, I try not to like throw individual mm. action and choice, you know, out the window completely because we do know that it builds and it helps helps build people's capacity. We'll probably get to this right. later when we talk about hope. Um, but so back to ecofascism, <laughs> um, ecofascism kind of comes out of this really strongly individualistic. Um, am I allowed to swear on this show? Yeah, I do all yeah. the time. It's 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 this it's really this fuck you. I've got mine kind of mentality, <laughs> right? And um, a lot of it's based on xenophobia, right? So we're yes. afraid of people coming into the country. Well, which people, right? It's always asked that question, right? Um, and so we're afraid of other people using up all the resources because all of a sudden there's the sense that they might be scarce for me, right? Mm-hmm. And where I see this mentality coming out the most uh, is is uh, is middle class, I wouldn't even say middle class, like upper middle class to affluent white men yep. who for the very first time in their lives suddenly feel threatened by mm-hmm. the fact that they may not, that their, their livelihoods may be disrupted. Mm-hmm. It's still pretty imaginary for most of them at this point, but this sense of anxiety is leading to like the bunker culture, right? I am going to get my bunker. I am going to, um, I'm going to start a prepper lifestyle. I'm going to retreat to my cabin in the mountains with my family. And I'm going to focus my sort of altruism inwards, right? On me, my kin, my community, my church, very narrowly defined, whatever it is, right? Versus the sort of outwards altruism, which is care for humanity, care for Mm -hmm. others, even if they might be strangers. Um, And so where we start to see this like creeping ecofascism in the environmental movement is, um, you know, really kind of playing out with this idea of, you know, curtailing population growth, 
curtailing uh, immigration, especially because again, Mm -hmm. these people coming in are going to need support. They're going to take resources away from me and my family. Um, Therefore, it's a bad thing, right? Um, It is not... It, it is not a long distance to walk from that towards eugenics, right? We, you right. Know, they hold hands. They hold hands, right? Exactly. Same thing with people with disabilities, and we start to see, mm-hmm. we start to see with the effect of altruism um, community. There are people who have who are coming out of these think tanks, right? So these are people who are. Um, who are trying to shape the discourse of the future. These are people that folks like Elon Musk read and love, right? Just mm-hmm. to give you some, some, some context in terms of, you know, how these ideas are shaping our future. Um, people have literally tried to calculate the social value of people from affluent countries versus poor countries and saying that if there is some sort of natural disaster in the future, we should take care of and and, uh, emphasize the protection of people in affluent communities because they are more likely going to have a positive impact on the future um, for all of society than people in poor countries because they just don't have access to resources. They don't have access to education. So they're just not going to innovate as much. They're not going to invent as much. They're not going to give back as much. So they are literally making the argument that as resources become scarce in a warming world, we should really just keep focusing our efforts on supporting people from affluent countries, right? White people. Which is so wild to me because I would bet my life that Elon Musk doesn't know how to garden or Mm -mm. grow anything. No. And it's also for me, just like as a personal thing, it's always so weird to hear or be a part of conversations around like, oh, you know, if like, you know, climate change, apocalypse, like, oh, I'm going to do all these things to like protect me and my family and, you know, get these guns. And I'm like, cool. I don't have a thyroid, so I'll be here for two months. I'll teach however many people I can to garden. And then I'm out, uh, which is a weird just a weird thing to uh, think about. And I think The Last of Us being a very popular show has more people <laughs> thinking about, um, you know, apocalyptic type things. Um, one thing I also just wanted to touch on in case folks who are listening are like, why didn't you mention this piece of eugenics? Um, where we're focusing specifically on like the eugenics and the overpopulation and that link Um, eugenics has impacted a lot of different communities. Um, The overpopulation focus has often really been targeted at poor people, which then has had a wider impact on Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. Uh, But the focus when we're looking at eugenics as like, you know, to address quote unquote overpopulation, that's where the focus is. Of course, looking at the history of like reproductive health and reproductive freedom, um, you know, we see not just with eugenics, but ways that people of color have been really harmed, whether we're talking about like you mentioned the pill, you know, the pill was originally tested on uh, women in Puerto Rico who were like really not given informed consent and were given doses that were like way too high to be safe that in many cases resulted in sterilization. You know, if we look at the root of uh, the field of gynecology, you know, that was an absolute monster of a white man who was torturing enslaved black women. Um, Mm -hmm quote unquote, for the sake of science. Um, 
So yeah, there are a lot of a lot of moving pieces in this. And obviously things like eugenics and ecofascism are like like you mentioned, they're hard to hear about. So I want to move into my next question. Oh because it does oh wait, no, unless you had another well, thought. No, you go. Uh, well, I was going to say, I don't know what your next question is, but for people who want the the thread really connected clearly, which I probably had not done yet. Um, one thing, you know, if you think about population control in terms of its connection with the environment, the U.S. government in 1969, we helped to fund the United Nations Fund for Population Activities. Right. And that was going to be a clearinghouse for information about population demographics across the world. It quickly turned into a group that essentially used coercive population control programs Mm -hmm. uh, to be implemented in other countries. And the U.N. Fund for Population Activities directly influenced the Chinese government's uh, one child policy. Right. So these are. You know, these ideas have influenced federal governments across the world, you know, and and the UN, which is like an international body. Right. These are ideas that kind of come out of these anxieties about about overpopulation and were literally used to develop coercive population programs in other nations Mm -hmm. with with the idea of, oh, it's for the environment. Right. Which is. Yikes. Yikes on bikes. Um, uh, but yes, to go into the next question. So obviously we've talked about this. We are living in a time where the climate crisis is getting progressively more crisis-y. Um, abortion access and trans rights are under attack. Police violence, particularly against Black people, is incredibly present and visible. I actually wrote this question before the Tyre Nichols murder, but it is, of course, mm. ever relevant. Um so where do you find hope and how do you relate to the Mariam Kaba quote, hope is a discipline? Oh, I love that. Um, and I get asked this question a lot um, because it's a really difficult time to be alive. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess you, we don't have to, <laughs> I guess it's always, that's something that's always been true, but it feels especially true lately. And it's it's hard, especially if you're someone who cares about the world, if you care about people and you care about the environment. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are environmentalists who are kind of more on the, um, you know, I hate people side of, of things. And so but if you have a big heart and you care about people and you care about the planet, um, this is a really difficult time. And so then this question is, where, where do you find hope? And for me, um, I like to think about hope not as this idea, the sort of passive definition where someone will come and save us. Um, We are the someone, right? In case you're looking around, like uh, we, we're here to save us, right? We, we are the ones who, who are born in this time and we are called to do this work. I I believe that very, very deeply. Um, And so for me, I think of hope as more of the Rebecca Solnit kind of hope in the dark definition where she talks about an, an uncertain future terrible outcomes are possible, but so are wonderful outcomes, right? We have the opportunity to shape our future and something good can come out of that. And so hope is really just the belief that our actions matter, that something that we do can make the world better. We can leave the world better than the, than the way it was handed off to us. And so 
you know, when we think about climate change, we we don't know what the outcomes are. We have a, a range of possibilities that are constrained by science and some understanding of human nature, but those are predictions, right? There's a range of potential futures. Um, some of them are quite dark and dire, but others others are really wonderful. And in that uncertainty, why not choose to decide that we're going to have a better future and then work for it, right? And the working for it to me is the part that, you know, comes back to that Kaba quote, hope is a discipline, right? It takes effort. It is not passive. It is something that you have to get up and choose to do every day, even on the days where you just don't feel like it. Um, And, you know, this idea that, I often come back to this idea of like, what if my ancestors had been cowards, right? What if they had not stood up against oppression? What if they had not, um, you know, fought fascism? What if they had not fought for my rights? Like, what did they lose so that I could be here today? And what do I owe the future? Um, You know, what will someone look back on and and think about me and what I did or didn't do to to kind of leave the world a better place? Um, So for me, hope is 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 just the refusal to decide on an outcome that is <clears throat> I just lost my voice while I was giving my <clears throat> hold on a second sorry you're good also while you take a drink <laughs> i just want to say what you were saying about like ancestors and like people looking back on us like did give me real actual goosebumps but continue oh that, that makes me happy yeah there's this idea of being a good ancestor right this um and i want to be a good ancestor so for for me oh man i wish i could remember where i was going with that because i i felt like i had a good sentence coming out um uh just basically that hope is the idea that in an uncertain future, I am going to choose to work towards the best possible outcome. And part of that means letting go of this binary approach that we often have to the world where everything is either fine or it's a total apocalypse. It is somewhere in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. There are, you know, and and (laughs) if you want to if you really want to show up for the environment, one of the best things you can do is to just work on your own personal tendencies to think in binaries because, you know, it is a spectrum. And as long as you are alive, as long as there is breath in your body, there is work to do for the environment and there's work to do for each other. And that will always be true regardless of how warm it gets. Every fraction of a degree, every life, you know, every single individual person you know, is worth fighting for. And if you approach your work with that ethic, then to me, I can't help but feel hopeful. And I look around and I see, I see youth, right? I see the people who come into my classroom and they are so scared, but they are so determined, right? I have never seen so much determination to build a better future than the one that they were, you know, handed um, from any generation. And I just look back and I think, you know, why could we not have done this for each other before it got so dire? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could, you know, and and so why delay action any further? Right. Um, I think this is a great time to take another quick pause for a Mabel's Fast Fact. If you're experiencing pelvic pain during sex or otherwise, the providers at Mabel Wadsworth Center are here to help. Call 947-5337 or email info at mabelwadsworth.org to set up an appointment today. All right, to send us off, what parting message do you want to leave our listeners with? 
I think it would just bring us back to the beginning of our conversation where we really hinted that environmental problems, reproductive problems, all of these are deeply connected. Mm. Um, oftentimes the climate crisis or the various um, you know, human rights or justice crises that we find ourselves in can just feel so big that it's difficult to know how to make a difference. But, you know, we talk about climate change as being an everything problem because it really affects everyone and everything, every aspect of our lives. And to me, what that means is that if you are working on abortion rights, you are helping the climate, right? If you are working on anti-racism, then you are helping the climate. If you are working on education, right? All of these different angles, voting rights, all of that, we all have a part to play and everyone is needed. You you can't fix all of it. None of us can. And, you know, just reject that individualistic thinking and become, you know, <laughs> bring us back to the, the last of us, right? Like we can each be little fungi connected by these little mycelium underground, right? Mm -hmm. um, popping up where we're needed and doing what we are called to do and knowing that that work is work for the climate. Um, and that includes reproductive justice and the reproductive justice work that we do and being cognizant of how we can do that work in ways that helps uh, each other and helps the environment and doesn't unintentionally reinforce some of these past harms, I think is just, mm -hmm. you know, that that's... That's what I hope people take away from this. Yeah. You know, if you're feeling really lost that these issues are so big and you can't do everything, which is like true, you can't, you're one person. I feel like that model is helpful, not just for finding direction, but for being reminded that like, oh, this takes people, not just me as an individual. This mm -hmm. takes working together. This takes filling different roles. Um, so I think that is a good reminder of, you know, something that can be helpful for when you're feeling, feeling kind of lost. Um, Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Reproductive Left. And thank you to our listeners for listening. I will see you all next time.